Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we are joined by Sarah Lam, who is a Minneapolis-based writer and researcher. Her work has appeared in outlets such as The Progressive, where she writes the Midwest Dispatch column and contributes pieces to the Public School Shakedown site. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Sarah's piece uh, entitled The Hijacking of Police Reform by Wealthy Opportunists Resembles the Harm Done to Public Schools. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Um, so on June 26th, as your article begins, the Minneapolis City Council voted to disband the police department. In November, the public you mentioned will vote on an amendment. Uh, in response, the Minneapolis police chief announced that his department would be using, uh, quote, real-time data developed by a Chicago-based Benchmark Analytics, which is a private firm that seeks to use algorithms uh, to solve the problem of policing um, right. and predict which officers will behave badly. So can you sort of take it from there? Yeah, um, the timeline has shifted somewhat because I think things happened very fast. So after George Floyd was killed, there was, of course, um, a tremendous outcry and pressure for change right away. And so the city council members said, sure, we're the majority of them said we're all for disbanding the police, defunding, that kind of thing. And that had its own pushback. So in that space, um, the police chief and the actually answers to the mayor and not the city council. So those two sort of collaborated, you know, on an approach for reform that I think they thought would quiet um, opposition. And that was to pull in benchmark analytics based in Chicago um, which, as you said, uses, you know, data, sort of this data-driven model that we hear in many sectors as a tool to reform the Minneapolis Police Department. Right. And um, the city council, so it's kind of complex, but standing behind all of this is something called the Charter Commission, which is an appointed body within Minneapolis that would evaluate any proposed um, constitutional changes, anything like that to how the city operates. And so before the city council could draft a proposal and present, have it, you know, go before voters in November, the Minneapolis Charter Commission had to evaluate that and say whether or not they thought it was ready. And they said no. So we're really not in a place in Minneapolis where um, any big reforms are going to happen this year. And the, can you Say that again. Is that the charter? What did you call it? I'm sorry, Sarah. It's like a charter commission. The charter so, co is that like an ALEC thing? Uh, I don't think it is. I think it's just, an, you know, honestly, living here for a while, I was oblivious to it. Okay. So it's something I need to look into more, but I believe it's just an appointed group um, that are more conservative. Right. And, and by that, I mean just in their approach. They want a methodical, let's slow all this down which could have its benefits. But the problem is that's like throwing, you know, a lot of cold water on the push for change. So we have that issue. And then we have the issue with the mayor um, and his proposal, which the chief of police, of course, the mayor is his boss, appeared to go along with. So we have two competing and I would say probably not satisfactory 
um, approaches going that really aren't meeting the demands of on-the-ground protesters. And this happens over and over again. I mean, we see it locally here where we'll have a group of grassroots activists really push an issue and that issue becomes, you know, sort of comes to the forefront locally or regionally. And the next thing you know, these sort of professional class, political class moves in. Yeah. They find a way to co-opt it or, a, you know, yeah. they try and take it over, dampen it down. So you, you note in the article that it's at odds with demands uh, from grassroots organizations and community groups uh, that there's no public oversight and that this is paid for by the Minneapolis Foundation. Can you talk about this connection between the Minneapolis Foundation? Is the former mayor's last name Rybach? Is that how you pronounce Ryback. it? Ryback. Ryback. Yes. Which is a Steven Seagal character from Under Siege. So the whole time I was reading your article, I was thinking of a Steven Seagal character from my childhood. Anyway, um, can you talk about the role of Mayor Ryback and and the Minneapolis Foundation and sort of where he fits into this? Yeah, so he, um, R.T. Ryback was the mayor of Minneapolis from 2002 until 2013 and then we had Betsy Hodges and now Jacob Fry. And it's widely believed that Jacob Fry, our current mayor, is um, closely aligned with R.T. Ryback, who who did have a very public persona. He was um, chair of the DNC for a while, um, as I allude to in the article, or he was seen as like a, a rising coming, you know, star on the national stage for the Democrats. And so he he's wields a lot of power in Minneapolis still in, in democratic circles. Um, since leaving the mayor's office, he did a stint with an education reform outfit based in St. Paul, and then became the head of the Minneapolis Foundation, which is one of the oldest philanthropic outfits in the state. They have a lot of money at their disposal. So it's a prime place where, um, you know, family foundations and that kind of thing, direct resources that the Minneapolis Foundation then distributes. And within that a model, you can imagine the issues with philanthropy that we're having today, which is, is sort of like controlling, and I would say probably tamping down reform rather than really allowing it to take place. So um, that connection there between Jacob Fry, R.T. Ryback, really struck a lot of people as problematic right away. And is Ryback, did you... I'm hoping I read this right, but Ryback also is a founding member of Benchmark Analytics? Yes. So he was on the founding board of Benchmark Analytics. So, I mean, it almost seems like something that would be in maybe a Steven Seagal movie. Like right. it's too, it's, it's like they thought no one would notice. I don't know. It's a narrative that's really like, is this really happening? But yes. And so he's no longer directly affiliated with it, but it, that was deeply problematic for many activists on the ground who were very familiar with Ryback, which I discuss in the article too. They were, they were, um, had seen him for a while as being someone who really sort of talks a good game in public, but then is behind the scenes tamping down a lot of real reform efforts. So when this rose up and it was known then that he had been a founding member of Benchmark Analytics, um, that I think that was deeply concerning for obvious reasons. Right. And you and you mentioned this is a a national program. I mean, I mentioned Alec, but there's so many think tanks and groups and and policy yeah. institutes out there that are pushing these right wing reforms. You connect this, of course, to the right wing privatization reforms that have really hit our schools. We've been a victim of that. We 
we're broadcasting here from Michigan City, Indiana, and our, our state has been just ravaged by right-wing education reforms. Can you talk about how the some of the methods are the same, but then also how this is connected and how the education reforms have played out, both under Ryback and, and sort of what you're seeing also uh, even recently in Minneapolis? Yeah, and I think being in the Midwest, being based in Indiana, you may be familiar as well with um, just the University of Chicago, which produced Arnie Duncan, yep. who was really a leader of the McKinsey type big data, you know, privatization movement with education. And so I think it's important to note that um, the guy who started Benchmark Analytics, and I'm sorry, I don't have his name at the top of my um, tongue, tip of my tongue, but he worked with Arnie Duncan. So he's Chicago based, hadn't been in education at all. And this is a pattern we see repeatedly. So no real experience in education was given a top position in the Chicago public schools to, you know, reform it. He'd actually been a Chicago police officer for a short time and just kind of managed to work his way up by becoming allies with people like Arnie Duncan. And so then um, he moved on to start Benchmark Analytics. I think seeing the model and how successfully they've made inroads in education. So to take a step back, what we've had in Minneapolis is a lot of attempts to apply, you know, what they would say is the accountability and standards movement to public education. And frankly, um, that's really based on a business model of if you're not performing, we'll shut you down. You know, the answer is to shut a school down. Like you see that in Chicago, obviously. Um, and just, you know, the idea that we can have this fresh start and that outside entities without direct experience in the classroom could somehow do it better and get better results um, without addressing the real, I would say, socioeconomic and, and you know, racial injustice factors that lie behind it. So Ryback um, was kind of overseeing that as mayor, had no direct control over the Minneapolis schools, but was an influential figure in opening the door to a lot of this um, philanthropy-driven data reform type of work. And that's primarily what Benchmark Analytics sells as well. It's a fee-based organization. So it's it's not provide, you know, it's not funded by public dollars. There's no public oversight. And that's another similar pattern. And the the gist is basically the same to come in and say we're going to do data analysis um, we're going to capture data and that's going to tell us something meaningful about how human beings interact right? right so that's the exact same i would say no um nothing no stone unturned in terms of where that model could be applied for these nonprofit in name kind of organizations to actually get some their hands on public dollars and um, offer this reform model. Now, what we've seen in Minneapolis, as far as education, I'm sure you'd say the same from Indiana, is here we are some 20 years later and we don't have those magical transformational outcomes that were promised. That's right. Even worse. I mean, the outcomes are much worse. And being a native of Chicago, of course, we're only 50 miles away. I mean, we're talking over 50 public schools that were shuttered and neighborhoods yeah. that were predominantly black and Latino neighborhoods, but even more disproportionately black neighborhoods. And uh, 
the connection between the sort of austerity programs uh, and the kind of violence and things we're seeing in the street is something that activists who've been, as you know, more often than not are both fighting against community sort of neighborhood violence and also police violence, um, you know, have been asking for resources in those communities and they've gotten the exact opposite and oftentimes from democratic politicians. I mean, and and I'm no one to praise the Republican party by any means. They've sort of led the way with a lot of these attacks, but uh, the Democrats as well. You mentioned Arne Duncan, who's well known throughout our region. I mean, to give you an idea of how this plays out for us locally, one of Artie Duncan's protégés, uh, Barbara Eason Watkins, uh, who worked with him in Chicago, ended up buying a vacation home here in Michigan City, Indiana, and now is the superintendent of the Michigan City uh, public school system. Uh, so these sort of like protégés just find their way yeah. into all kinds of school systems um, and yeah. public institutions. You even note that in 2007, and this is amazing because you, you mentioned that Howard Dean praised Ryback as the, the leader of the American progressive movement, which is just yes. beyond out of touch. And mm-hmm. that he, w- in 2007, was the only person to speak publicly in favor of shuttering schools on the city's historically black north side? Yes. Yeah, that's something that I have never forgotten. I didn't know it at the time, but I did receive a grant in 2013 from the Nation Institute to do some investigative journalism in the education reform movement in Minneapolis because it's multi-layered and very complex. And that was one of the first things I stumbled upon was, um, you know, the, the cry had been, as it always is, the schools are failing, they're failing our kids. And so the answer proposed was, let's shut a bunch of these schools and the kids will get better results if we bust them elsewhere, just like in Chicago and and other areas. And yeah, it's so striking. Anyone can find this. You can, um, there's pictures from the school board meeting where neighborhood activists who are honestly not organized in any fashion that I'm aware of, simply students and parents and grandparents saying, we love these schools. They mean so much to us. Don't close them, please. And R.T. Rabbit, the only person saying, yes, do this. Ultimately, they did close the schools. And I think the devastating, destabilizing impact is really part of the Minneapolis story right now with how we ended up where we are in this you know, summer of uprising, protests, but also lingering violence and destabilized communities. I wanted to quote a section from uh, one of the last pages of your article, because I think it's the key point that you make, and then I kind of want to get your thoughts on how you see this moving forward. What should we be keeping our eyes on? Um, And, you know, any organizations that you feel people should pay attention to that are doing good work in Minneapolis. But you you write in in your article, quote, uh, this raises another key point. A data-driven approach funded by elites is not the same thing as allowing community members to guide police reform in their own neighborhoods, unquote. And you you mentioned, of course, that activists have been saying this over and over again. So moving forward, what are the, you know, what are the organizations that you think people should be sort of following uh, that are leading the way in, in Minneapolis? And, and is it is it true, I know you mentioned earlier that the city council's uh, proposal was sort of, or ordinance was shot down. Does that mean that there won't be a referendum vote then in November on the issue? 
it won't appear on the ballot in November. Okay. So the only bone I think that that's been thrown, so to speak, is that the mayor just announced his budget the other day and um, there's less money for the police force and um, more money for there's like a community model that's violence interrupters. I don't know if that's a standardized term that people are familiar with, but it's the concept of, you know, a lot of people say, and I'm sure rightfully so in many instances that the police don't prevent crime. They respond to it. If they even respond, that's another issue we're dealing with this summer in Minneapolis. So the violence interrupters idea is getting people on the ground in the community who are aware of, of you know, tensions, disputes, you know, prominent characters and so on, and they're able to intervene. So there has been some money allocated to that. And I think that's really largely due to community activists keeping the pressure on and not only expressing dismay with the initial efforts of our mayor, Jacob Fry, to align himself with the elites in the city, Ryback in particular, um, but also just some dissatisfaction with the city council in throwing out an idea, well, hey, we're all for defunding the police, but not really having a plan. And sort of that concern about like a squandering of opportunity effect. Um, so I think pressure has been kept up. And the mayor has responded to that with a small, relatively gesture of less money for police and a little bit more for these this community model. So that's one thing taking place. Um, are you originally, I just is off topic from your article, but are you originally from uh, Minneapolis, Sarah? Yes, I grew up here and haven't always lived here, but I've lived here now since 2002, so. Okay. And, and you've been, have you been sort of reporting and writing on these issues ever since then? No, for a while I was an English instructor. So at a community college um, in suburban Minneapolis, I did that for 10 years and then took a step back and just fell into all of these really political neoliberal issues connected to education. So it's been since about 2013 that I've been writing and researching. Yeah. What do you what do you think moving forward? Because I it doesn't sound like you're too optimistic about the sort of reforms that are on the table. But obviously, there's still people in the streets organizing. People are you know they're going to be organizing as as we move forward, and maybe even also your thoughts on just the upcoming election, sort of where we're at. I mean, we just had this uh, horrific announcement uh, in Louisville. Uh, that's just I mean right. has really I mean people it's trending all over the place. So I think a lot of people who aren't even, you know, maybe aware of these movements, maybe a lot of people are aware, but, you know, maybe not involved with them. They're definitely seeing these headlines and they're reading about these things. And I just, yeah, I guess I'm wondering what you're, because I want to transition into your article about Zinn, which is about so much more than just policing or education, but yeah, yeah, just getting your thoughts sort of on the bigger picture of where we're at today. Well, where my mind goes immediately is to actually St. Paul, who um, is facing some of the same issues as Minneapolis, but they have a pilot program they've put in place where they are just paying people in need. So um, people who are it's struggling to make ends meet, those kinds of things, just giving people a cash payment. So where our federal government has failed us in not authorizing another, you know, inter, you know, package to support people during this really difficult time. 
St. Paul has um, is doing this program. They're giving people money to make ends meet. That is the kind of reform that I'm really interested in. I think that's something that's, you know, we have um, we have so much money flowing into Minneapolis. It's a very wealthy city, actually. We have a lot of disparity, but we have a lot of money in the city. We have a lot of nonprofits. So the nonprofit industrial complex, I think is an issue here where money gets trapped at the nonprofit level, doesn't really reach the people in need. So I think that St. Paul plan is really worth people looking into and paying more attention to. It's sort of what Andrew Yang you know, ran on the yeah. universal basic income model. That's something that I feel like is not mentioned and tried enough, like simply helping people make it through the day and making it easier for parents to care for their kids. And then there's also an ongoing movement in Minneapolis around, um, they call it George Floyd Square now, where George Floyd was killed. People have been holding down, um, holding that down, I guess, and not allowing it to go back to normal, which is not, you know, universally beloved, I should say, like some people in the neighborhood are against that. But but it isn't letting life just get back to normal. And we see this like kind of hit after hit with the Breonna Taylor. And I wasn't expecting any of those officers to be indicted, but it's sort of like um, that those, those institutions that we uphold as those are fundamentals of American liberty and so on, continually show that they're they're not applied universally. So I think keeping an eye on, it's actually uh, mostly women run efforts in the George Floyd Square area. I think they have a list of demands and they're not ceding control back to the city of that little area. I think that is definitely something to watch. That's good. And it sounds more, but we have a lot of friends uh, in the Northwest and the opposite was true of the sort of chap chaz zone zone, where there was a disproportionate number of males um, Mm -hmm. and males walking around with weapons. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it helps to have a disproportionate number of females running any kind of organizing effort for those uh, reasons alone. (laughs) Um, Let's talk a little bit. Everybody knows there's no reason to give the details. Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, recently died. Uh, As expected, Trump and the GOP jumped all over the opportunity. I think anyone who understands the Republican Party expected them to do that right away and promised to fill the vacancy by the end of the year. And we've seen, um, you know, Republican senators cave on that, Romney and others. It looks like they, they will likely get a vote unless something significant happens. So, you know, you mentioned it, so it's so true. I was reading this and it was like progressives and liberals took to social media. And one of the names that came up, of course, over and over again was Howard Zinn. And I saw it throughout the day. Howard's a, a great uh, hero of mine because I'm a veteran myself. And Howard being a veteran and coming home, Veterans for Peace and the anti-war activism, all of this was like one of the first people to bring me into this into this work. And so I'm always happy whenever whenever anybody brings up his name. And being from Indiana... We had a wonderful Republican governor, Mitch Daniels, who um, once sort of waged his own little personal war against Howard Zinn. And ever since I've been in the Marine Corps and since I've gotten out in 2006, his name continues to come up. The Bush administration here at the state level in Indiana, other politicians and right wing commentators continually. I mean, Glenn Beck was obsessed with him for like six months, I, you know. I, so I'm funny. I'm interested when you were introduced sort of to his work and then we can 
you can sort of talk about. We don't have to go into it in detail, but just the spirit of what you were trying to get at, referencing Howard Zinn's uh, 2005 progressive uh, article about at the time, of course, Bush was uh, nominating uh, Justice uh, John Roberts, who's actually a native of Laporte, Indiana, which is 15 minutes oh. away from here. So we have that oh. dubious honor. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he hasn't been as bad as people feared, I think. Yeah. At least, I mean, at least when it comes to Trump. But I, you know, I think that um, it was probably through my work as a teacher because I was an adjunct instructor. So I was pretty much on my own, but I was really drawn to progressive education models. Um, how do you kind of, you know, bring a Paulo Freire model in where you're really empowering, not lecturing, those kind of things. I believe it's probably through that that I first discovered Howard Zim, but then I do have four kids of my own. And that's one thing we've kind of, I would say, gelled around as a family. We have Howard Zinn's Young People's History of the United States. And so on Labor Day this year, for example, my son um, my son was saying, why do we have Labor Day? And he's in high school. And I know he was sort of, you know, re, you know, not exactly like he had no idea. But I went and got that book. It's a continuous reference on a personal level for me as a parent and just as an individual who wants to always understand things better. So the history I got growing up was very patriotic, growing up in Minneapolis, one dimensional. I never learned, for example, about um, Native American history in my own state. So the Dakota people, the th you know, we went to um, sites that they considered sacred with no knowledge of that. So I've had to relearn things as an adult and Howard Zinn has just been so essential in that. And so I just, like you, I've, it's just something I've gravitated to that's really guided my thinking. And so when the announcement came with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it just became apparent right away that there's a community of people that feel the same way, that this is something we can use. Howard Zinn has an amazing, to me, calming effect where he's got this broad view of things where it's like, no, don't freak out about this because actually they've never really delivered for poor people, working people, you know, people of color. I just, you kind of have to agree with him. He's sort of always right in that point. Um, and so when I saw his piece from 2005 about the Supreme Court, um, it really, it really gave me a necessary perspective. Don't panic, don't freak out. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died at a really inopportune time, although she certainly gave much of her life to this cause. But now it's this window of opportunity where it can be used against, I would say, us in the collective sense. And so um, Howard's in writing in 2005 when people had that same feeling, we're losing, we're losing out. You know, here's, you know, John Roberts, really conservative fundamentalist in terms of the Constitution and all that. And his Howard Zinn's angle on, you know, you can't count on these institutions to really look out for the average person, I think is something we need to remind ourselves of all the time. Like we see, saw that play out, I would say in Minneapolis when this horrific incident took place with George Floyd, but right away, you know, the city council and our mayor who are very aligned with the progressive movement, at least on paper, they couldn't deliver anything. It takes sustained grassroots pressure and change does often doesn't happen overnight. So 
that's really what made me think of Howard's Inn when I went to um, write my Midwest Dispatch column. It just made so much sense to me. And I think it's very important right now because I'm not sure if you agree, but you know, our sort of line with the program is that we think it makes strategic sense to get rid of Trump and to, uh, you know, elect Biden. But we say that understanding that the day after uh, Joe Biden is elected, unless he sees people in the street, unless unions are on strike, students are resisting, you know, families are out organizing in their communities, that we're not going to get much from him or Harris or the Democrats either. So no, no, it's, it's such an important lesson. I'm, I'm glad I have teenage and young adult kids right now, actually, because I am seeing this through their eyes and they don't have that illusion. And I think that's a sign of progress, actually. They don't expect Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, any of that to deliver. It, it, there is, it is, I think, unwise to be overly optimistic. Yes, Trump needs to go. Um, he's obviously dangerously authoritarian and fascist. Um, but yeah, expecting, I mean, I think just like people, I think rightfully say Obama was very centrist. He was not a radical and that kind of person likely isn't going to be elected president. We're not going to get a Howard Zinn, you know, devotee most likely. Right. So it's, it's a lot of sustained grassroots pressure and union activism, which I think has been, um, one I wouldn't say benefit, but one thing we can look to as a sign of hope since 2016, we've had the Red for Ed, these various movements that I think are really, again, a long view of history, you know, via Howard Zinn or another person like that shows that that is what leads to progress. I agree. And that's a good note to end on in these dark times. We're trying to leave people with some positive endings to these programs. Right. So So important. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Take care. You too. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you can become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics, art, roots, culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.